Eight minutes it is before 8 p.m. It's the wrap of the top business stories this evening. And joining me to take a look at uh, some of the top stories spanning uh, the gold sector right through to ESCOM, uh, through to the telecom sector across the continent in the form of MTN, and also the aviation sector, which has certainly been uh, something as a martini of late. Uh, I'm joined on the line by Nolwandle Mtombeni, market analyst, to take a look at some of these big stories. Nolwandle, good evening to you and welcome. Good evening, Mr. Mtombeni. Good, 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 good. No, Luanja, let's maybe start off there at ESCOM, uh, you know, and get the big elephant out of the room uh, before we get to the other stories. Trade uh, wage negotiations underway uh, and uh, NUMSA and the NUM leading the charge uh, for many of the working people there. But uh, it seems, yeah, ESCOM digging in their heels saying we can't afford it, but effectively we also want uh, to, uh, you know, change the conditions of work because there's certain things that at this point we can't afford. And one of those is how, uh, you know, people have been paid out their overtime. Yeah, I think the cash-strapped elephant <laughs> has hey. to dig in its heels because it's just financially there's no flexibility to meet certain demands. Um, and what we're getting is that NUM is demanding a 15% wage increase and we know that inflation is sitting between, you know, 3.2 to 4.3. So, you know, I think, you know, if you want to be, you know, kind of have a little, give a little leeway, would think about maybe 2 to 3% above inflation would be the kind of march it would look at in terms of increasing wages. So 15% is, is pretty significant, especially mm. given the circumstances. So I imagine because we know just how bad things are at ESCOM, they do have to just kind of, you know, kind of be tight, tight, hold on tightly to the purses and not just be as, as as flexible in terms of offering good increases and adjust those working conditions until it's financially stable um, to be able to offer more. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's one of those things. I mean, you know, we've, we've already started to see uh, in many of the negotiations that have happened a sense of very deep mistrust between the two parties. I mean, um, I would say probably a lot more adversarial the wage negotiations have been across different sectors than they have been in the past. Um, I mean, coming in with the kind of demands we've seen here, you know, one-year agreement, 15%, um, you know, increase in certain allowances. uh, And effectively, I mean, also the workers saying what is implied in some of the things that ESCOM is suggesting is a 0% increase. Now, uh, I've never understood, I guess, the the English of 0% increase, but let's work with that for a second. Um, it seems, I guess, that's how these negotiations are going to go. Uh, and I also, you know, don't necessarily expect any of the unions th- here to take this lightly. No, definitely not. I think our unions have never taken anything like <laughs> yeah. So I think we know how, you know, the organized labor works in this country. And I don't think it's going to be any easier for, for ESCOM just because they are drowning in debt. I think, you know, the unions will, you know, stand firm and dig in their heels. Mm. And we expect them to, and that's okay, because, you know, they're fighting for the workers. Um, the problem is that now we need to just be realistic at this point in time. Mm. In that, and also, you know, 0% is just, I don't think 0% is a number. I don't think 0% yeah, is... Yeah, yeah, I've just, I mean, I remember even on campus, <laughs> uh, you know, pe- people would say, no, no, we don't want a 5% fee increment, we want a 0% increment. And I said, I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, let's work you know, with it. So, and the problem is now, what has happened, because the economy is not growing we finally pulled back to inflation, inflationary mm. increases. That is just like the basis for any negotiations and with, you know, some margins added on to that. So I think 
you know, I, the, the unions will come down. They have to. I mean, you know, we can go and start talking strikes and everything, but the nature of negotiations that you start high and then you, you kind sure, of come down sure. and you meet in the middle. And it will happen because also what is now being faced is also retrenchments of very realness in environments, which also add into that. Mm. So, so there's a lot of dynamics playing out. But I think at the end of the day, there will be something more reasonable. And it's, unfortunately, the kind of situation in is that, you know, it's job versus, you know, high increases. Mm. Look, I mean, we, we know what happened in the last round of wage negotiations around 2018 or so. I mean, I remember images of Pagamani Hatebe effectively trying to run for his life, if I can put it that way. Uh, that's my recollection. Um, and one would argue that I guess the situation is a lot worse now with COVID-19, uh, but also in light of some of the revelations that have come through. I mean, we were talking about 1.4 billion uh, that was fleeced from ESCOM yesterday. Uh, a story coming out of uh, law enforcement agencies. Uh, one would think that the workers are probably more mistrustful of any assertions or, or, or pleading of poverty on the part of ESCOM. Yeah, I think, you know, corruption is always going to taint the picture, right? Mm. It will also get in the way of any sort of seemingly progress that, you know, ESCOM might be making on any front in terms of whether it's cleaning up house or fixing the balance sheet. And I think at this point in time, I think because it's a wage negotiation, it really needs to be looked at as that and that we need to be realistic about what to expect in a wage negotiation. Of course, you can bring in external factors like, oh, you know, this, the CEO is getting paid this, you guys were first and you found these funds. But at the end of the day, when you're sitting at that table then between you two parties negotiating and even if there's, you know, labor or mediation there, you're going to come down to where's an inflation rate, what can mm. the company offer? Those are the things that will matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's shift the tension away from this one and uh, go to the gold sector. Um, yeah, DRD Gold, uh, production volumes down uh, uh, for the uh, quarter ending 31 March. And if that's compared to the uh, quarter ending the year of 2020, around 31 December or so, uh, probably declining production in response to a much lower rand gold price. So I think there has to be a seasonality element of it because mm. now we're comparing to, you know, around the festive season, I imagine. So, I mean, I, there might be some other factors in there, but I do think, I mean, over that period, you know, we can expect some weakness in production. But the most important thing is that, you know, South Africa hasn't um, explored a new shaft in decades. So no one should really expect the gold production to be increasing at a, you know, increasing rates just because the the prices were favorable. Mm. So on the in the you know production side, I think we should be expecting a decline in production, especially on a year year on year basis, to be declining for the next forever until you know maybe someone has enough capex to go and you know tackle those you know very deep mines that we have. Mm. And then also the WAC, the RAND has also strengthened during the period, so which means that the revenue generated will be, will be lower. So overall, the results show that there was a decline both in production and the gold sold. Um, and, you know, EBITDA, also the profitability, because of that also will come down. And we should expect it because it was never going to be shooting the lights forever. Mm. And, yeah, I think we 
you know, maybe we're going to start adjusting our minds and expectations around what we expect of the gold sector this year. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean, always a sector that faces its own unique challenges here in South Africa. I mean, very, very deep ore bodies. Uh, if you look at some of the prices, I guess, per kilo uh, of uh, mined uh, uh, output, uh, we're also seeing, I guess, some uh, price pressures there that are coming through in the current moment. Yeah, and, you know, the RAND has been strong and it's continued to strengthen, which is very positive for everything except for the the gold and the mining in terms mm. of the commodity prices. And it's come through in these results with um, one of the reasons why the actual revenue generated was lower is because the brand strengthened about 4% during the period. So, you know, but these things are bound to happen. Mm. What would help the next quarter if there was weakness in the RAND? But we don't want that because we've got more to lose um, from a weak rand, especially as the, economy, the activity in the economy picks up, because mm. then you'll start importing more. Exactly, and then you start and to import your inflation. Exactly. Yeah. exactly, and then it hits inflation, and then we we be paying more for our bonds and all those things. Mm. And of course, I guess you know that that's been a historic challenge of a commodity reliant economy like South Africa, that there's mm. always the incentive um, for the uh, South African rand, I guess, to depreciate on the back exactly. of. Uh, periods where there's very good commodity prices and uh, mm-hmm. that has extensive implications for the local manufacturing sector uh, because we know I guess mining has become um, a lot more capital intensive um, if I can use that term. Now Nolanti I want us to shift from that fr- from there uh, and uh, I was saying earlier to the listeners wh- one of the big stories certainly for me today is the story of um, you know this uh, quarterly update from MTN uh, and it happens at a time where I think Ralph Mopita and his team have a lot of news to share. Um, it's not just, I guess, the, the good showing uh, for the uh, you know, mobile money and insure tech offerings on the fintech side of things and what they want to do in rejigging that structure of their business or even much better data volumes or a CapEx story. But I still think that Ethiopian story is still something to, to marvel at. Look, it was a 21-page quality update. <laughs> it was way too long. Yeah, when you've got, you know, when you're out to share, when you are here to share, you know, 21 pages, it's a quarterly, man. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, you guys must read there in the markets. We don't want you sitting yeah. there every day, Justin, looking for one-page sends announcements. Uh-uh, you must read. You know, that, that, that's the thing, right? And and it's ironic. It's like, I think it's 21 pages, and they operate in 21 different countries. So, <laughs> and, you know, you say you have a page for each One region. country a page. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, that's how they timed it. So, yeah, I mean... You know, and that's the nature of, you know, when you're operating in so many different territories, I think there's a lot going on for for, for MTN. And they are actually navigating the regions very, very well. And I think it's, you know, a huge part of that, I must say, is, you know, know, when Putuma had to step in after the Nigeria thing, um, he cleaned up the house and be like, guys, you need to be on top of the different regions that we're in. Um, you know, big thing has been obviously repatriation of, of cash and region and regulatory compliance in all the regions they're in, we'd obviously bitted a lot. Mm. So, I mean, if you're going to talk about ATM, I mean, geez, it's, it's just, it's a lot. And But they're doing good things, um, diversifying in terms of the offering. And the, the results in terms of quarterly was very good in terms of, you know, we're seeing that the initiatives they're taking in, especially mm. as far as fintech, and if you're not operate in Africa and the rest of Africa, you have to have a grasp on mobile and digital, you know, platforms that are currently thriving in those markets and regions, mm. and be able to, you know, 
capitalize on that. No, grow no, the I, footprint. I mean, just talking about that, I mean, I think you, you would know more than most uh, around this issue. I, I'm quite interested in the tactical advantages of the restructuring of their fintech operations. I mean, they've made it clear that they want to create sort of a, a top top structure that anchors all of their different investments in fintech, in, you know, uh, it might be mobile money, insure tech, and some of the other offerings that uh, they've put out. Um, and I guess the thinking behind doing that, I mean, uh, I know in Ethiopia that as part of that bid, you know, if, if they do win that license, uh, it doesn't necessarily allow them to engage in financial services. So it certainly cuts off the opportunity for that fintech play in that country. But is this just, I guess, for regulatory reasons or is there maybe uh, another, I guess, uh, sort of value maximization or capital structure rationale behind why you would hive off your fintech offering, create a top structure and effectively manage it in that way and take it away from, you know, the mobile business uh, or the telephony business that I guess has been so critical to to its Mm. emergence? So this fintech structure, the one key thing about that is capital light very capital like model that can have ROEs, higher ROEs, mm. and, and, and at the same time, very cash generative. So immediately you have an asset which you can you know, get higher margin, spend less on. It means that its value can triple or you can get multiples of the value in a very short space of time. And even if there's a Jacob, it's much shorter and you can realize value from it very, much quicker. And because it's currently a very fast-growing market, obviously it's it's a very attractive asset to be in. Once you have you know different segments of operations, and a lot of noise can just cover up you know some good gems within your portfolio. The minute you strip something out and put it separately, it shines a separate spotlight on it, and then investors can value it for its true value and have a full view of what's happening in there. So in highlighting the growth of fintech and, you know, the traction it's gaining and its potential, you know, we stop paying attention about, oh, look at those Nigerian problems. Look at the cash they can't get out of Nigeria. Mm. Look at those regulatory hurdles. Look at that, you know, all the capex they need to spend on on keeping up the towers and the infrastructure and the licensing bids or spectrum. You know, those are all the noise. But here you have a fast-growing capitalized asset in there that is growing in markets. And even if you can't, you know, integrate financial services in there, you can gain traction. And mm. over time, you can get other licenses. Sure, sure. And then you can, you could spin it into some money-making machine in five years from now. Let's talk about that CapEx as well. Um, I mean, the extension of fiber into very interesting SADC markets. I mean, that, that major fiber investment in Zambia. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, fiber is the way to go. I think, you know, because, you know, digital is everything now. Mm. Technology is everything now. And if you are part of, you know, the infrastructure part of that, you have a sort of mover advantage. You get to, you know, help grow your scale. And if you are a telecoms company, you need to probably have your finger in the game in terms of, you know, certain fiber and, you know, have, you're not saying that you're going to, you know, grow it massively, but it must be something that you have knowledge in and being able to use it if you can, if it helps the market that you're entering into. So, you know, you know, here, I mean, even fiber, even the movement to fiber, I think anyone had to choose between LT and fiber at home, obviously you go for fiber without Mm, a doubt. mm. So I think it's also about being aware of 
where technology is going. You know, even if the market's not there yet, being able to move towards that. But also what happens if you are going in there investing in this market, the market could also be growing with you, um, especially, you know, when we, you have a dominant market share. I mean, they've, you know, MTN in the regions it operates in, most of them it's in the top three in terms of market share. Mm. So with that first move in March that you could have in there, it's a you know, good place to grow that scale. And remember, you know, once you're big in the market, it's, it's the opportunities for growing in terms of other service offerings and other yeah. streams of revenue is limitless. Certainly one uh, that's uh, going to be interesting as it unfolds, I guess, the story of MTN and uh, some of their markets uh, where they're continuing to, to operate. But um, I guess in the main, Nolwandia, that double-digit showing for the, uh, you know, uh, data business and uh, even, you know, 86.6% increase in value, albeit of a low base for their mobile money offering. I mean, it's something certainly not to be scoffed at. Uh, so um, in the main, I guess a good showing on the part uh, of uh, MTN there in the last quarter. And uh, just as we wrap up, um, I'm quite interested in uh, your views, Nolwandia, on what's happening at Kulula. Now, uh, they're in business rescue, uh, Comair, uh, and uh, Kulula.com negotiating uh, with Boeing to cancel a MAX uh, plane deal. And uh, these are the same planes that uh, had some issues at Ethiopian Airlines and were grounded shortly after you know Kulula was able uh, to uh, receive them. Uh, what do you make of this one? And more importantly, uh, I mean, this is an entity that still continues to trade, still has uh, relatively strong, you know, uh, roots and a strong showing on the part of many of the customers who book uh, on uh, the coach. I mean, what's what, what's your view on this one? Yeah, I mean, I get very tense when I see, you know, a low-cost carrier in our, in our country, you know, being in the news because, damn, we can't have this. You know, I mean, did you see mango? Monopolized. Did you see mango? I mean, the fly safe goes now. <laughs> hey, shaking and lift your auto. It's very, it's very it's tough, cr- right? No. We're we trying to get our travel lives together, but um, I think, you know, because they're still in the business rescue process, I think they're in a position where they want to renegotiate as much as possible. And we know that, you know, after the, you know, the plane crashes, the 737 MAX, you know, every every certain airline has been re- reviewing their, you know, orders that they've placed for the 737 MAXs and, you know, Comet's also adding their names there. And I don't think it's because now they think it's, oh, well, we, we don't, you know, we don't trust the airplanes. I just think it's just, you know, at this point in time, if they can, you know, decrease the liabilities and they're going to take the shots, because I imagine... Um, the cost of getting into those deals was going to be much higher than, you know, something like lawyer's fees to to fight this. So I think it's still part of, you know, the rationalization and mm. making it smaller, especially because just in general, the market has become so much smaller. It, you know, in the pre- I mean, COVID has, you know, decimated volumes going through in terms of traffic and airfare, uh, traffic going through. So they have to do what they can do just to kind of get out of what they can it won't be easy, but I think sustainability is important at this point mm. in time, especially given that volumes are still around 40 to 60% of pre-pandemic levels. And it's probably going to be like that until next year because it's still, it's, it's still, we're still not ready to, you know, you know, because a lot of these flights, you know, they have co-shared with international travel. Mm. So mm. immediately already, without, even if we in South Africa have resumed full activity, there's still going to be a huge portion of travel that's, Related to international travel, that's not going to be there. Actually, and what, with what's happening out in uh, India, um, exactly. and uh, I guess in the third flare-up in other parts of the world, 
Hey, not a chance that uh, the international aviation market's going to recover anytime soon. And of course, it always has a domino impact on many other you know, sectors in the economy, uh, in particular the tourism sector. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the tourism sector has 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 been, you know, really, really, really tough. And but in the same token, though, I'm I'm actually, you know, so happy to see that, for example, during Easter, the Kruger National Park was just like, you know, full. Like, you know, they were turning people Look, away. I mean, there were lions just chilling on the roads, you know. <laughs> exactly. Uh. <laughs> So it's a good thing that we, at least locally now, but mm. then it doesn't help if, you know, if our, if our local airlines are messing up and Mango's not getting their cash, which they did eventually. I'm sure you saw that. Um, so, you know, it's, on one side, it's the international travel. It's really bad for tourism. But I think as locals now, we actually taking the time to go see the rest of our country, which we should have been doing all along. Mm. We'll have to leave it there. This one was always a pleasure catching up with you. And uh, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Tom Benny is a market analyst uh, speaking to us uh, yeah, about some of the big stories there in the marketplace, including the 21-page quarterly update from the MTN Group.